Part One, Chapter Two, Part Two of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two, Part Two, Three. With no clear plan as to his dinner, he took her back to Alexandra Grove. The dusk was far advanced. Mounting the steps quickly, Marguerite rang the bell. There was no answer. She pushed up the flap of the letter aperture and looked within. Have you got your latch key? she asked, turning round on George. Father's not come home, his hat's not hanging up. He promised me certain that he would be here at six thirty at the latest, otherwise I should have taken the big key. She did not show resentment against her father, nor was there impatience in her voice. But she seemed to be firmly and impassively judging her father as his equal, possibly even as somewhat his superior. And George admired the force of her individuality. It flattered him that a being so independent and so strong should have been so meltingly responsive to him in the cathedral. An adventurous idea occurred to him in a flash, and he impulsively adopted it. His latchkey was in his pocket, but if the house door was once opened he would lose her. He would have to go forth and seek his dinner, and she would remain in the house. Whereas, barred out of the house, she would be bound to him. They would be thrust together in exquisite contingencies into all the deep potentialities of dark London. Dash it, he said, first fumbling in one waistcoat pocket, and then ledging the portfolio against a step, and fumbling in both waistcoat pockets simultaneously. I must have left it in my other clothes. It is doubtful whether his conscience troubled him. But he had a very exciting sense of risk, and of romance, and of rapture, as though he had done something wonderful and irremediable. Ah, well, she murmured, instantly acquiescent, and without the least hesitation descended the steps. How many girls, he demanded, would all could have made up their minds and faced the situation like that? Her faculty of decision was simply masculine. He looked at her in the twilight, and she was inimitable, unparalleled. And yet, by virtue of the wet glistening of her eyes in the cathedral, she had somehow become mystically his. He permitted himself the suspicion, perhaps she guesses that I am only pretending about the latchkey. The suspicion which made her accessory to his crime did not lower her in his eyes. On the contrary, the enchanting naughtiness with which it invested her only made her variety more intoxicant and perfection more perfect. His regret was that the suspicion was not a certainty. Before a word could be said as to the next move, a figure in a grey suit and silk hat and both arms filled with packages passed in front of the gate and then halted. Oh, it's Mr. Buckingham Smith, exclaimed Marguerite. Mr. Buckingham Smith, we're locked out till father comes. She completed the tale of the mishap to George's equal surprise and mortification. Mr. Buckingham Smith, with Mr. Albert Prince, was tenant of the studio at the back of number eight. He raised his hat as well as an occupied arm would allow. Oh, come and wait in the studio, then, he suggested bluntly. You know Mr. Cannon, don't you? said Marguerite, embarrassed. George and Mr. Buckingham Smith had in fact been introduced to one another weeks earlier in the grove by Mr. Hayne. Thereafter, Mr. Buckingham Smith had, as George imagined, saluted George with a kind of jealous defiance and mistrust, and the acquaintance had not progressed. Nor, by the way, had George's dreams been realised of entering deeply into the artistic life of Chelsea. Chelsea had been no more welcoming than Mr. Buckingham Smith. But now Mr. Buckingham Smith grew affable and neighbourly. 
Behind the man's inevitable insistence that George should accompany Miss Hame into the studio was a genuine eager hospitality. The studio was lofty and large, occupying most of the garden space of number eight. Crimson rep curtains hung on a thick blackened brass rod, divided it into two unequal parts. By the wall nearest the house, a staircase ran up to a door high in the gable, which door communicated by a covered bridge with the second floor of number eight, where the artists had bedrooms. The arrangement was a characteristic example of the manner in which building was added to building in London, contrary to the intention of the original laying out, and George, in his expert capacity, wondered how the plans had been kept within the bylaws of the borough, and by what chicane the consent of the ground landlord had been obtained. Mr Albert Prince, whom also George knew slightly, was trimming a huge oil lamp which depended by a wire from the scarcely visible apex of the roof. When, at length, the natural perversity of the lamp had been bastard and the metal shade replaced, George got a general view of the immense and complex disorder of the studio. It was obviously very dirty. Even in the lamplight the dust could be seen in drifts on the moveless folds of the curtains. It was a pigsty, but it was romantic with shadowed spaces and gleams of copper and of the pale arms of the etching press and glimpses of pictures. And the fellow desired a studio of his own. He was glad now that Mr Buckingsmith had invited them in. He wanted to keep Marguerite Hain to himself, but it was worthwhile to visit the studio, and it was especially worthwhile to watch her under the illumination of the lamp. Lucky we have a clean tablecloth, said Mr Buckingham Smith, opening his packages and setting a table. Brawn, Miss Hain, and beer, Miss Hain, that is to say, Pilsner, from the only place in Chelsea where you can get it and his packages really did contain brawn and beer, four bottles of the Pilsner, also bread and a slice of butter. The visitors learned that they had happened on a feast, a feast which Mr Buckingham Smith had conceived and ordained, a feast to celebrate the triumph of Mr Albert Prince. An etching by Mr Prince had been bought by Vienna. Mr Buckingham Smith did not say that the etching had been bought by any particular gallery in Vienna. He said, by Vienna giving the idea that all Vienna, every man, woman and child in that distant and enlightened city where etchings were truly understood, had combined for the possession of a work by Mr Prince. Mr Buckingham Smith opined that soon every gallery in Europe would be purchasing examples of Alfred Prince. He snatched from a side table and showed the identical authentic letter from Vienna to Mr Albert Prince with its official heading, foreign calligraphy and stilted English. The letter was very complimentary. In George's estimation, Mr Prince did not look the part of an etcher of continental renown. He was a small, pale man with a small brown beard, very shabby, and he was full of small, nervous gestures. He had the innocently red nose which pertained to indigestion. His trousers bagged horribly at the knees, and he wore indescribable slippers. He said little in an extremely quiet, weak voice. His eyes, however, were lively and attractive. He was old, probably at least thirty-five. Mr Buckingham Smith made a marked contrast to him, tall, with newish clothes, a powerful voice and decisive gestures. Mr Buckingham Smith dominated, though he was younger than his friend. He tried to please, and he mingled the grand signorial style with the abrupt. It was he who played both the parlour-maid and the host. 
he forced margaret to have some brawn served her with a vast portion but he could not force her to take pilsner now mr cannon he said pouring beer into a glass with an up and down motion of the bottle so as to put a sparkling head on the beer no thank you said george decidedly i won't have beer mr buckingham smith gazed at him challengingly out of his black eyes oh but you've got to he said it was as he had said i am generous i love to be hospitable but i'm not going to have my hospitality thwarted and you needn't think it george accepted the beer and joined in the toasting of mr albert prince's health old oh, chap mr buckingham smith greeted his chum and then to george and marguerite informally and seriously it was during the snack that mr buckingham smith began to display the etchings of mr alfred prince massed in a portfolio he extolled them with his mouth half full of brawn or between two gulps of pilsner they impressed george deeply they were so rich and dark and austere old pretty boy is one of the finest etchers in europe to-day if you ask me said mr buckingham smith off-handedly and with the air of stating the obvious and george thought that mr prince was the etchings were not signed alfred prince but just prince which was quietly imposing everybody agreed that vienna had chosen the best one it's a dry point isn't it marguerite asked peering into it george started this single remark convinced him that she knew all about etching whereas he himself knew nothing he did not even know exactly what a dry point was uh, mostly said mr prince you can only get that peculiar quality of line in dry point george perceived that etching was an entrancing subject and he determined to learn something about it everything about it then came the turn of mr buckingham smith's paintings these were not signed smith as the etchings were signed prince by no means they were signed buckingham smith george much admired them though less than he admired the etchings they were very striking and ingenious in particular the portraits of the still life subjects he had to admit that these fellows to whom he had scarcely given a thought these fellows who existed darkly behind the house were prodigiously accomplished of course said mr buckingham smith negligently you can't get any idea of them by this light though he added warningly it's the finest artificial light going better than all your electricity there was a pause and mr prince sighed and said i was thinking of going up to the promenades to-night but buck won't go george took fire at once the, the glazunov ballet new music glazunov repeated mr prince uncertainly no i rather wanted to hear the new elgar george was disappointed for he derived from mr enright positive opinions about the relative importance of elgar and glazunov go often he asked no said mr prince i haven't been this season yet but i'm always meaning to he smiled apologetically i thought to-night despite appearances he was not indifferent after all to his great viennese triumph he had some mild notion of his own of celebrating the affair i suppose this is what etchings are printed with said george to mr buckingham smith for the sake of conversation and he moved towards the press the reception given to the wonderful name of glazunov in that studio was more than a disappointment for george he felt obscurely that it amounted to a snub. Mr. Buckingham Smith instantly became the urbane and alert showman. He explained how the pressure was regulated. He pulled the capstan-like arms of the motive wheel, and the blanketed steel bed slid smoothly under the glittering cylinder. 
Although George had often been in his stepfather's printing works, he now felt for the first time the fascination of manual work, of artisanship in art, and he regretted that the architect had no such labour. He could indistinctly hear Mr. Prince talking to Marguerite. This is a monotype, said Mr. Buckingham Smith, picking up a dusty print off the window sill. I do one occasionally. Did you do this? asked George, who had no idea what a monotype was and dared not inquire. Yes, they're rather amusing to do. You just use a match or your finger or anything. It's jolly good, said George. Do you know, it reminds me a bit of Cezanne. Of course, it was in Paris that he had heard of the great original, the martyr and saviour of modern painting. Equally, of course, it was Mr. Enright who had inducted him into the esoteric cult of Cezanne, and magically made him see marvels in what at the first view had struck him as a willful and clumsy absurdity. Oh, murmured Buck, stiffening. What do you think of Cezanne? Roll it out, said Buck, with a warning, cantankerous inflection, firmly and almost brutally reproving his conversational delinquency of George's. Roll it out, young man. We don't want any of that sort of mountebanking in England. We know what it's worth. George was cowed. More, his faith in Cezanne was shaken. He smiled sheepishly and was angry with himself. Then he heard Mr. Prince saying calmly and easily to Miss Hame, the little old man could not in fact be so nervous as he seemed, I suppose you wouldn't come with me to the prom? George was staggered and indignant. It was inconceivable, monstrous, that those two should be on such terms as would warrant Mr. Prince's astounding proposal. He felt that he simply could not endure them marching off together for the evening. Her acceptance of the proposal would be an outrage. He trembled. However, she declined, and he was lifted from the rack. I must really go, she said. Father's sure to be home by now. May I? demanded Mr. Buckingham Smith, stooping over Marguerite's portfolio of designs, and glancing round at her for permission to open it. Already his hand was on the tape. On oh, no account, she cried. No, no, Mr. Cannon, please take it from him. She was serious. No, oh, all right, all right. Mr. Buckingham Smith rose to the erect good-humouredly. After a decent interval, George took the portfolio under his arm. Marguerite was given thanks for hospitality. They left. George was singularly uplifted by the fact that she never concealed from him those designs upon which Mr. Buckingham Smith had not been allowed to gaze. And, certain contretemps and disappointments notwithstanding, he was impressed by the entity of the studio. It had made a desirable picture in his mind. The romantic paraphernalia, the etchings, the canvases, the lights and shadows, the informality, the warm odours of the lamp and of the pilsner, the dazzling white of the tablecloth, the quick, positive tones of Buckingham Smith, who had always to be convincing not only others, but himself, that he was a strong man whose views were unassailable. The eyes of Buckingham Smith like black holes in his handsome face. The stylish gestures and coarse petulance of Buckingham Smith, the shy assurance of little old Prince. He envied the pair. Their existence had a cloistral quality which appealed to something in him. They were continually in the studio, morning, afternoon, evening. They were independent. They had not to go forth to catch omnibuses and trains, to sit in offices, to utilise the services of clerks, to take orders, to consider the idiosyncrasies of superiors. They were self-contained, they were consecrated, and they were free. No open competitions for them, no struggles with committees and with contractors, and no waiting for the realisation of an idea. They sat down and worked, 
and the idea came at once to life, complete, without the necessity of other human cooperation. They did not sit in front of a painting or etching and say, as architects had too often to say in front of their designs, that is wasted, that will never come into being. Architecture might be the art of arts, and indeed it was, but there were terrible drawbacks to it. And next he was outside in the dark with Marguerite Haim, and new, intensified sensations thrilled him. She was very marvellous in the dark. Mr. Haim had not returned. Well, she muttered, and then dreamily, what a funny little man Mr. Prince is, isn't he? She spoke condescendingly. Anyhow, said George, who had been respecting Mr. Alfred Prince, anyhow, I'm glad you didn't go to the concert with him. Why? she asked with apparent simplicity. I adore the proms, don't you? Let's go, then, he suggested. We shan't be very late, and what else is there for you to do? His audacity frightened him. There she stood with him in the porch, silent, reflective. She would never go. For sundry practical and other reasons she would refuse, she must refuse. I'll go, she said, as if announcing a well-meditated decision. He could scarcely believe it. This could not be London that he was in. They deposited the portfolio under the mat in the porch. 4. When they got into the hall, the band was sending forth a tremendous volume of brilliant, exhilarating sound. A vast melody seemed to ride on waves of brass. The conductor was very excited, and his dark locks shook with the violence of his gestures as he urged onward the fingers and arms of the executants flying madly through the maze of the music to a climax. There were flags, there was a bank of flowers, there was a fountain, there were the huge crimson-domed lamps that poured down their radiance, and there was the packed crowd of straw-hatted and floral-hatted erect figures gazing with upturned, intent faces at the immense orchestral machine. Then came a final crash, and for an instant the thin, silvery tinkle of the fountain supervened in an enchanted hush, and then terrific applause with yells and thuds above and below the hand-clapping filled and inflamed the whole interior. The conductor, recovering from a collapse, turned round and bowed low with his hand on his shirt-front. His hair fell over his forehead. He straightened himself and threw the hair back again, and so he kept on, time after time, casting those plumes to and fro. At last, sated with homage, he thought of justice, and pointed to the band, and smiled with an unconvincing air of humility, as if he was saying, I am naught. Here are the true heroes. And on the end of his stick he lifted to their feet eighty men, whose rising drew invigorated shouts. Enthusiasm reigned. Triumph was accomplished. Even when the applause had expired, enthusiasm still reigned, and every person present had the illusion of a share of in the triumph. It was a great night at the promenades. George and Marguerite looked at each other happily. They both were inspired by the feeling that life was a grand thing, and that they had reached suddenly one of the summits of existence. George, observing the excitement in her eyes, thought how wonderful it was that she too should be excited. "'What was that piece?' she asked. "'I don't quite know,' he said. "'There don't appear to be any programmes about.' He wished he had been able to identify the piece, but he was too content to be ashamed of his ignorance. Moreover, his ignorance was hers also and he liked that. The music resumed. He listened, ready to put himself into the mood of admiration, if it was the Glazunov item. 
Was it Lazanov? He could not be certain. It sounded fine. Surely it sounded Russian. Then he had a glimpse of a programme held by a man standing near, and he peered at it. Number four, Elgar, Sea Pictures. Number five was the Glazunov. It's only the Elgar, he said with careless condescension, perceiving at once by the mere virtue of a label that the music was not fine and not Russian. He really loved music, but he happened to be at that age from which some people never emerge, at which the judgment depends almost completely on extraneous suggestion. Oh, murmured Marguerite indifferently, responding to his tone. Glazunov's next, he said. I suppose we couldn't sit down, she suggested. Yet it was she who had preferred the promenade to the grand circle or the balcony. We'll find something, he said, with his usual assurance. And, in the corridor that surrounded the hemicycle, they climbed up onto a narrow ledge in the wall, and sat side by side in perfect luxury, not dreaming that they were doing anything unusual or undignified. As a fact, they were not. Other couples were perched on other ledges, and still others on the cold steam pipes. A girl with a big face and heavy red lips sat alone, lounging, her head aslant. She had an open copy of Home Notes in one hand. Elgar had sent the simple creature into an ecstasy, and she never stirred. Probably she did not know anyone named Enright. Promenaders promenaded in and out of the corridor, and up and down the corridor, and nobody troubled to glance twice either at the heavy-lipped solitary girl or at the ledged couples. Through an arched doorway could be seen the orchestra and half the auditorium. This is the best seat in the hall, George observed proudly. Marguerite smiled at him. When the sea pictures were finished, she gave a sigh of appreciation, having forgotten, it seemed, that persons who had come to admire Glazunov ought not to relish Elgar. And George, too, reflecting upon the sensations produced within him by Elgar, was ready to admit that, though Elgar could of course not be classed with the foreigner, there might be something to be said for him after all. "'This is just what I needed,' she murmured. "'Oh? I was very depressed this afternoon,' she said. "'Were you?' he had not noticed it. "'Yes, they cut down my price from a pound to seventeen and six. They were the employing bookbinders, and the price was the fixed price for a design, side and back. He was shocked, and he felt guilty. How was it that he had noticed nothing in her demeanour? He had been full of the misfortune of the firm, and she had made the misfortune her own, keeping silence about the grinding harshness of bookbinders. He was an insensible egotist, and girls were wondrous. At any rate, this girl was wondrous. He had an intense desire to atone for his insensibility and his egotism by protecting her, spoiling her, soothing her into forgetfulness of her trouble. Ha! Huh. He understood now what she meant when she had replied to his suggestion as to visiting the cathedral. It might do me good. How rotten, he exclaimed, expressing his sympathy by means of disgust. Couldn't you tell them to go to the Dickens? You have to take what they'll give, she answered, especially when they begin to talk about bad trade and that sort of thing. Well, it's absolutely rotten. It was not the arbitrary reduction of her earnings that he resented, but the fact of her victimhood scandalous, infamous, that this rare and delicate creature should be defenceless against commercial brutes. The Glazunov ballet music, The Seasons, started. Knowing himself justified, he surrendered himself to it, to its exoticism, to its Russianism, to its willful and disconcerting beauty. 
and there was no composer like Glazunov. Beneath the sensory spell of the music, his memory wandered about through the whole of his life. He recalled days in his mother's boarding-house at Brighton, musical evenings at which John Orgreave was present at his stepfather's house in the Five Towns, and in all kinds of scenes at the later home at Ladderedge Hall, scenes in which his mother again predominated, becoming young again and learning sports and horsewomanship as a girl might have learnt them. And they were all beautiful beneath the music. The music softened. The fountain was heard. The striking of matches were heard. Still, all was beautiful. Then he touched Marguerite's hand as it rested a little behind her on the ledge. The effect of contact was surprising. With all his other thoughts, he had not ceased to think of the idea of shielding and enveloping her. But now this idea utterly possessed him. The music grew louder, and as it were, under cover of the music, he put his hand round her hand. It was a venturesome act for such a girl. He was afraid. The hand lay acquiescent within his. He tightened the pressure. The hand lay acquiescent. It accepted. The flashing realisation of her compliance overwhelmed him. He was holding the very symbol of wild purity, and there was no effort to be free. None guessed. None could see. They, too, had the astonishing, the incredible secret between them. He looked at her profile, taking precautions. No sign of alarm or disturbance. Her rapt glance was fixed steadily on the orchestra framed in the arched doorway. Incredible, the soft, warm delicacy of the cotton glove. The applause at the end of the number awoke them. He released her hand. She slipped neatly down from the ledge. I think I ought to be going back home. Father, she murmured. She met his eyes, but his embarrassed eyes would not meet hers. Certainly, he agreed quickly. They had been in the hall little more than half an hour. He would have agreed to any suggestion from her. It seemed to him that the least he could do at that moment was to fulfil unquestioningly her slightest wish. Then she looked away, and he saw that a deep blush gradually spread over her lovely face. This was a supreme, impressive phenomenon. Before the blush, he was devotional. 5. They walked down Regent Street almost in silence, enjoying simultaneously the silence and solitude of the curving thoroughfare and the memory of the bright, crowded, triumphant scene which they had left. At Piccadilly Circus, George inquired for the new open motor buses which had just begun to run between the Circus and Putney, passing the Redcliffe Arms. Already, within a year, the time was historically distant when a policeman had refused to allow the automobile of our Member of Parliament to enter Paddy's Yard on the ground that there was no precedent for such a desecration. The new motor buses, however, did not run at night. Human daring had limits, and it was reported that at least one motor driver, succumbing to the awful nervous strain of guiding these fast expresses through the traffic of the West End, had been taken to the lunatic asylum. George called a hansom, of which there were dozens idling about. Marguerite seemed tacitly to object to this act as the germ of extravagance, but it was the only classic thing to do, and he did it. The hansom rolled rapidly and smoothly along upon that well-established novelty, India rubber tyres. Bits of the jingling harness oscillated regularly from side to side. At intervals, the whip-thong dragged gently across the horse's back, and the horse lifted and shook its head. The shallow and narrow interior of the hansom was constructed with exactitude to hold two. Neither occupant could move in any direction, 
and neither desired to move. The splendidly lighted avenues, of which every detail could be discerned as by day, flowed evenly past the vehicle. "'I've never been in a hansom before,' said Marguerite timidly, because the situation was so dismaying in its enchantment. He, from the height of two years of hansom using, was touched, delighted, even impressed. The staggering fact increased her virginal charm and its protectiveness. He thought upon the simplicity of her existence. Of course she had never been in a hansom. Hansoms were obviously outside her scheme. He said nothing, but he sought for and found her hand beneath the apron. She did not resist. He reflected, can she resist? She cannot. Her hand was in a living swoon. Her hand was his. It was admittedly his. She could never deny it now. He touched the button of the glove and undid it. Then, moving her passive hand, he brought both his to it, and with infinitely delicate and considerate gestures, he slowly drew off the glove, and he held her hand ungloved. She did not stir nor speak. Nothing so marvellous as her exquisite and confiding stillness had ever happened. The hansom turned into Alexandra Grove, and when it stopped he pushed the glove into her hand, which closed on it. As they descended, the cabman, accustomed to peer down on loves pure and impure, gave them a beneficent look. "'He's not come in,' said Marguerite, glancing through the flap of the front door. She was exceedingly self-conscious, but beneath her self-consciousness could be noticed an indignant accusation against old Haim. She had rung the bell and knocked. "'Are you sure? Can you see the hat-stand?' "'I can see it enough for that.' "'Look here,' George suggested with false lightness. "'I expect I could get in through my window.' His room was on the ground floor, and not much agility was needed to clamber up to its ledge from the level of the area. He might have searched his pockets again and discovered his latch-key, but he would not. Sooner than admit of deception, he would have remained at the door with her all night. Think you could? Yes, I could slide the window-catch. He jumped down the steps and showed her how he could climb. In two minutes he was opening the front door to her from the inside. She moved towards him in the gloom. Oh, my portfolio, she stopped, and bent down to the mat. Then she busily lighted the little hall lamp with his matches, and hurried down, taking the matches, to the kitchen. After a few moments George followed her. He was obliged to follow her. She had removed her coat. It lay on the sole chair. The hat and blouse which she wore seemed very vivid in the kitchen, vestiges of past glorious episodes in concert halls and hansoms. She had lighted the kitchen lamp, and was standing apparently idle. The alarm clock on the black mantelpiece ticked noisily. The cat sat indifferently on the corner of the clean, bare table. George hesitated in the doorway. He was extremely excited, because the tremendous fact of what he had done and what she had permitted, with all the implications, had to be explicitly acknowledged between them. Of course it had to be acknowledged. They were both fully aware of the thing, she as well as he, but spoken words must authenticate its existence as only spoken words could. She said, beginning sternly and finishing with a peculiar smile, I do think this business of Father and Mrs. Lobley is going rather far. And George had a sudden new sense of the purely feminine adroitness of women. 
In those words, she had clearly conceded that their relations were utterly changed. Never before had she made even the slightest, most distant reference to the monstrous household actuality, unadmitted and yet patent, of the wooing of Mrs. Lobley the charwoman by her father, the widower of her mother. If Mr. Hames stayed away from home of an evening, Mrs. Lobley was the siren who deflected him from the straight domestic path. She knew it. George surmised it. The whole street had its suspicions. But hitherto Marguerite had given no sign. She now created George the confidant of her resentment. And her smile was not an earnest of some indulgence for her father. Her smile was for George alone. He went boldly up to her, put his arms round her, and kissed her. She did not kiss, but she allowed herself to be kissed, and she let her body loose in his embrace. She looked at him with her eyes nearly upon his, and her eyes glittered with a mysterious burning. He knew that she was content, that she should be content, that it should please her to let him have the unimaginable experience of holding that thrilled and thrilling body close to his, seemed to him to be a marvellous piece of sheer luck and overwhelming good fortune. She was so sensuous and yet so serious. Her gaze stimulated not only love but conscience. In him, ambition was superlatively vigorous. Nevertheless, he felt then as though he had never really known ambition till that moment. He thought of the new century and of a new life. He perceived the childishness and folly of his favourite idea that an artist ought to pass through a phase of donjunism. He knew that the task of satisfying the lofty and exacting and unique girl would be immense, and that he could fulfil it, but on the one condition that it monopolised his powers. Thus he was both modest and proud, anxious and divinely elated. His mind was the scene of innumerable impulses and sensations over which floated the banner of the male who has won an impassioned allegiance. Don't let's tell anyone yet, she murmured. No, I mean for a long time, she insisted. No, we won't, he agreed, and added scornfully, they'd only say we're too young. The notion of secrecy was an enchanting notion. She cut magic cake and poured out magic milk, and they ate and drank together, for they were hungry. And at this point the cat began to show an interest in their doings. And after they were both in their beds, but not after they were asleep, Mr. Haim, by the clicking of a latchkey in a lock, reminded them of something which they had practically forgotten, his disordered existence. End of Part 1, Chapter 2, Part 2